A little while ago, I conducted a funeral up at Kilhoman. It was a terribly sad day, as the person who had died left behind a young family. After the service, I got talking to one of the mourners. He was a Christian, and he was telling me how sad he felt about how few people attended church on our island. Suddenly, with a big sweeping motion of his arm, he pointed to all those still standing by the grave, and he said these words, Minister, look at them. There are no atheists in foxholes. What he meant by that is that in a time of extreme fear, stress or sadness, all people will hope for a higher power to come to their aid. Death is too stark a reality to face on our own and we instinctively reach out for help. In first century Athens, there were no atheists either. As Paul reached the city, he discovered that the inhabitants were all very religious. In fact, atheism was unknown in the ancient world for the simple reason that people realised for anything to exist, it must have been made by someone or something. Because there was a world and because there was life within it, it proved that there must be a God of some kind. But who that creator God was and how he behaved was the matter of intense debate. Residents of Athens loved nothing more than discussing religion. They would argue over the latest ideas for hours in the public square and very rarely come to any consensus. In this short reading alone, we see five different systems of belief in the city. Judaism, the idols of Greek mythology, Epicureans, Stoics and Agnostics. In many ways, Athens was a city that resembled the world we live in today. A pluralistic world of different gods and temples, moral outlooks and ways to worship. When Paul arrived in the city for the first time, he was quite overwhelmed and distressed by it all. This was not going to be an easy place to live for Jesus. But after his initial shock, he goes on to give us a great example of how to live in a world of competing religions. First, he listened and he looked. Then he took the time to understand what the people believed. And finally, when he had enough background information, he communicated the gospel in such a way it was perfectly relevant to the company he was in. I don't think that there are many atheists on Isla. Many more people on Isla see themselves as spiritual, but don't really know what they believe. We can learn much from this passage on how to talk to them. After speaking in the synagogue, where Paul would have tried to show the Jews how Jesus fulfilled their scriptures, the first religious group he engages with are the worshippers of idols from Greek mythology. Athens was full of these idols, housed as they were in impressive temples. Paul was taken to the Areopagus, the home of Ares, the Greek god of thunder and war. Greeks would constantly be touring round sites like this, making offerings, trying to placate the gods. If they made an offering to Ares, he would protect them from enemies and storms and help them win their battles, or so at least they thought. After doing this, they'd then offer service to other gods, the gods of love, harvest and travel, just to make sure none of the pantheon got left out and thereby got upset. 
They lived in constant fear of the divine curse and thunderbolt. Paul looks around the city, takes all this in, and then makes his response. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Come on, Athenians, think about it. If a God made the whole world, how can he possibly be reduced to a building? How can you make an object out of gold or silver, wood or stone and say that it is God? God cannot be something human beings create, otherwise who created us? And if God did make the whole world, why does he need anything from us as a gift? Everything is his in the first place. He gives us everything we have. It's a compelling argument, one that is profoundly logical and reasonable. And yet at the end of the chapter, we see that very few people turn away from their idols towards the living God. And we all know that there are many idols in the world still today. We might not worship Greek gods anymore, but we idolise money and power, the rich and the famous, sports stars and celebrities. But none of those idols can help us at a funeral. None of those idols can help us in a time of crisis. If human-made objects are the extent of our belief, we are all in trouble. We need to encourage people to turn to the creator God who has the power to give life and breath each day on earth and then on beyond the grave. The second group that Paul engages with were the Epicureans. Epicureans believed that there was a God who created the world, but he was now totally separate from his creation. He acted a bit like a divine watchmaker. He put all the pieces of the universe together, wound it up, and then sent it out of his workshop never to see it again. What this meant was that the God of the Epicureans could never intervene in the world. Therefore, death really was the end. The grave was the final curtain. After that, there was nothing. Epicureans believed then that people were to make the most of their days on earth. They were to seek maximum pleasure. It may not surprise you to hear that this was a religion mainly for the upper classes. As before, Paul takes his time to understand the Epicurean worldview, and then he makes his response. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. What Paul is saying there is that God is not distant from this world. He is intimately involved in it and always has been. He's had a plan and a purpose right from the beginning. He wants the people that he has made to get to know him. Ultimately, he sent his son into the world so people could have life. Paul says God made the world. He is separate from the world, yes, but he is in the world. Always has been, always will be. He will never abandon his creation, but keep reaching out and into it. Many people today still live as Epicureans. They may believe that a God created the world, but that he is of no relevance anymore. He cannot answer prayer. He cannot get involved. 
So therefore, they might as well just do what they like. They might as well just live for pleasure. They might as well just live an easy life for themselves. The problem is that this belief also is useless at the graveside. Death is the end. There's no hope for your loved one. And you have no one able to help or comfort you in your grief because God is nowhere to be found. As Christians, we are to point to the creator God who stepped into the world. The God who could send Jesus to ensure that death was not the end. The God who has not abandoned us but has a plan and a purpose. The God who can answer prayer and bring us help in our time of need. The third group that Paul engages with were the Stoics. Stoics were very different to the Epicureans. They believed that the divine lay within the present world. In fact, it could be found in everything. And I use the word it for God here very deliberately because Stoics thought the divine was impersonal, much closer to what people today would describe as fate. Stoics believed that everything happened in the world for a reason. Therefore, human beings were to be self-sufficient, and whenever they encountered suffering, they were to embrace it quietly as something reasonable. Still today, we would describe someone as stoic if they stood up to hardship without complaining. Stoics actually took this so far that they believed suicide was more honourable than showing emotional weakness. Again, Paul takes in their beliefs and responds with the part of the gospel exactly relevant for them. First of all, he declares, we are God's offspring. In other words, God is not an impersonal force. He is not just fate. He's not to be found in the form of trees and rocks. God is profoundly personal. And we know this because we're made in his image as his offspring with the capability of relating to him. Second, he says this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Now, what is the relevance of God's justice to a Stoic? Stoics have no answer for anything that takes place in the world that seems unreasonable. Abuse, crime, genocide the murder of a teenager like Brianna Jai. All Stoics can say in response to these things is that God must be in them. There must be a reason. So we must suck them up. It's fate. We have to accept it. We have to get on with it. But in each one of those situations, every fibre of our being is screaming, this is not right. This is not fair. This is not reasonable. It hurts. It makes me want to cry. It makes me angry. Paul makes it clear that there are things that take place in the world that God does not cause. There is evil. There is sin. And these acts are profoundly destructive. And God doesn't want us just to put up with it. For he's not prepared to do that himself. One day he will judge the whole world to remove evil and sin from it. We have to repent before that day comes, trusting in the forgiveness of Jesus. We then have to work to confront evil in the world and actively help those who are suffering. There are many in the world today who still advocate a form of stoicism, the British stiff upper lip, but it often crumbles at the graveside. 
We have to mourn. We have to cry. We have to show emotion. For we are made in the image of God who wants life, not death. The God of justice who is dealing with all the brokenness in the world. So one day it will be no more. This is far better news for people today than a form of fate that encourages us to suck up life and just get on with it until we die. The final group that Paul engages with in Athens are the agnostics. Amongst all the idols and temples of the city, he finds an altar addressed to the unknown God. Agnostics then, just as now, follow the logic that there must be a God, otherwise how else was the world made, but they think they can know nothing more about him. In Athens, that meant they offered sacrifices to an unknown altar, just in case they upset this God by accident. I think there are lots of agnostics on Isla today. Maybe they've grown up with the vestiges of Sunday school and assemblies in primary school, but have not heard another word since then. They attend funerals in church where they feel there is a God and when death must be confronted, he's to be turned to. But they live the rest of their lives in uncertainty and with any lack of assurance. Many agnostics are very good people. Because like in Athens, they're hoping to do enough good in the world so they will deserve God's favour when their time comes. But they're never sure. Will God help them? Have they done enough? Who knows? Paul is quite blunt with the agnostics of Athens. He says, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Paul believes there is no excuse to be unknowing about God because he has revealed himself in full view of the world. First in creation, but principally in the life, death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Events for which there is hard historical evidence. Factual events that took place before human eyes. He says he has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection reveals who God is. He is the God of love, the God of life, the God who has the power to conquer the grave, the God who is fixing his creation, the God who has done everything necessary to bring us to himself, the God who can be learnt about by looking at Jesus. If we get to know the God of resurrection, we need not live in uncertainty anymore. And we are to proclaim this truth at every service and every funeral that takes place on our island. I hope by reading this passage, we can now see that first century Athens is not that dissimilar to our world today. There are very few atheists, but a whole range of religious beliefs. This passage has shown us how to respond. We are to look and listen until we understand. And then we are to declare the gospel concentrating on the parts most relevant to the situation and the people we are speaking to. In Athens, Paul did not see overwhelming success to his message, just a few converts. And perhaps that brings a dose of reality to us today, or maybe at least the encouragement that we're not getting everything wrong. Sadly, this is how it has always been. But let us keep confidently declaring the creator God who made all things. The loving God who is deeply connected with the world. The just God who will put all unreasonable things right. And the God of resurrection who has given us all the evidence we need for faith and the promise of life after death.